Okay, here we are at the Glenn Show. John McWhorter, my bi-weekly conversation partner and I, formerly of bloggingheads.tv, now of substack.com, glennlowry.substack.com, and at YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, Glenn Show. We're with Ed Santori. He's the director of the Institute for Freedom and Community at St. Olive College in Minnesota. And John and I are interviewing Ed uh, about controversy, Ed, as I understand it, over your directorship and uh, free speech issues that have arisen in the context of that controversy. And I wanted to, uh, our viewers to have an opportunity to hear from you about that and just kind of kick it around with you a little bit with John. Yeah, glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let me just ask, John, are you still there? I'm back. Okay. So we've introduced Ed, we've introduced John, we're talking about St. Olive College and about controversy uh, at the Institute for Freedom and Community at St. Olive, and uh, Ed is the director there. And I should mention that both John and I have been guests uh, on the... um, speaker series uh, platform that Ed has been directing uh, at St. Olive and uh, that uh, FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, is involved in the controversy. John sits on the board at FIRE, as I understand. I thought our listeners should know about that. But Ed, what's going on at St. Olive? Well, it's um, it's a long story. Um, let let me just say a little bit about the institute first. Um, uh, I am the director of the Institute for Freedom and Commuter at Saint Olaf College, at least for the time being. Um, and um, the institute has been in existence since two thousand fourteen. Um, and the idea of the institute, to the purpose of the institute, is I'm now just going to read to you the. Uh, the principles of the the mission statement. The purpose of the Institute is to shape America's future by educating students with a passion for public affairs and a commitment to free inquiry and the search for truth, exploring diverse ideas about politics, markets, and society. The Institute seeks to challenge presuppositions, question easy answers, and foster constructive dialogue. And some of the goals to support free inquiry and free and spirited expression where students with diverse points of view and values can study, discuss, and debate political and social issues in a respectful environment. Um, uh, To, uh, let's see, just a couple of other things. To emphasize discussion and deliberation, challenging students to think critically and carefully about their own assumptions by examining topics from diverse cultural and ideological perspectives. Uh, and uh, let's see, to foster an environment of civil and respectful disagreement in which all students are encouraged to share their ideas regardless of how unpopular their ideas may be. And there are other things uh, that I could read from the mission state, but that gives you a general sense of what the mission of the Institute is. Uh, To acquaint students, uh, faculty, non-faculty staff, and the larger community with a range of issues and positions which perhaps they are not accustomed to see uh, or to hear um, uh, in the academic environment in which we in which we operate. So we're bringing in speakers all the time who are pushing the envelope, I suppose is the way we could put it, um, uh, in interesting, interesting ways. Um, and in moments, as you can imagine, uh, in the academy today, when that is your purpose, that is your mission, um, they're going to you're going to be ruffling some feathers now and then, and that certainly has been the case with our Institute for Freedom and Community. Um, uh, and uh, to cut to the chase, uh, we had uh, this February a guest, Peter Singer. Peter Singer is uh, anyone who knows anything about philosophy will know that Peter Singer is one of the most influential philosophers in the world today. Uh, he is a kind of, uh, has been a kind of prophetic voice almost on matters of animal rights, but he's also been very, very important with respect to uh, presenting this, uh, this, care, uh, this idea of his called effective altruism, uh, which uh, articulates strategies for doing something about world poverty and the obligations that those who live relatively well have to those on the other side uh, in other circumstances and relatively impoverished circumstances. So he's quite famous for that and has been enormously influential as a philosopher. But then uh, in moments, he, as I say, pushes the envelope a bit on issues of disability. 
Uh, and uh, again, just to cut to the chase, um, his position um, with respect to certain disabilities, persons born with certain disabilities, he is open to the possibility of infanticide under certain conditions. Now, I want to say, uh, okay, so he's, I am he's very controversial. Not in agreement Ed. with Singer on all this. Yeah, excuse but Ed, I, I, excuse me for interrupting, but I, I wanted to try to draw the uh, description into cer a certain focus. So you were giving in short order uh, the lay of the land. Sure, okay. Okay. No, I mean, I, I, so, I wanted you to uh, conclude giving in short order the lay of the land, but I, I was just hoping that you could conclude it quickly. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. sorry. Uh, uh, so in any you event, laid out, uh, You was, laid uh, out the mission. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I was just going to summarize. You laid out the mission and the principles on which the Institute was operating and the role that you're playing at St. Olive. You pointed out the necessity, therefore, bringing in people who are going to be controversial, of whom one is Peter Singer, a philosopher who has written about infanticide. But I, I wanted to try to get to the controversy about your own directorship and uh, uh, what has transpired. So... I was just I was just urging you along a little bit, if you don't mind. No, no that's that's fine. Uh, well, we we announced this uh, event for Peter Singer, and uh, there was um, a reaction, a hostile reaction to the fact that we were, we were hosting him prior to the event having taken came, place. That's right. Prior to the event having taken place, some students uh, who were associated or at least self-conscious about disability issues uh, began raising questions about uh, his visit and whether or not he ought to be hosted by the Institute. Um, they, insisted and, that you, um, they insisted that he be canceled? Excuse me. Uh, in, certain, in some moments, oh. yes. There was a petition that called, uh, called for uh, that. Um, and individual students were calling for that. And then we got, we got uh, communications from parents who were calling for that. And this, this then slipped into uh, the Office of Disability at St. Olaf, which um, was critical publicly of the fact that we were hosting uh, Peter Singer. Um, all this prior to, to the... Various... Again, excuse me, all of this prior, prior to, to the event That's itself, right. which right. you went ahead we, with in any yeah, event. Yes, we did. We went ahead with the event. Um, and quite frankly, uh, I thought at the time the event went went off without a hitch. I mean, I thought it was quite successful and that he came off as quite reasonable on any number of issues. By the way, the central issue was not disability. He, in fact, he didn't want that to be the centerpiece of the event. The central issue was what he calls the point of view of the universe and its implication for any number of different issues. So, for example, animal rights, world poverty, but also uh, disability questions, but that wasn't the center. Uh, but anyway, there was there were these these criticisms, and um, uh, uh, the disability office sent out a note of complaint. We had the event. Uh, the event I thought went very well, and anyone who watched the event would uh, came to me and said, except for one particular person, but uh, uh, came to me and said, oh, you know, what was the problem? Why this guy seems, you know, we might be dis in disagreement with him on any number of issues, but he seems so reasonable and uh, well articulated and so forth. And so I thought it went pretty well. But uh, after the event, I was visited by administrators from on high. <laughs> Uh, this the now college, after the uh, event. Conveying to me that uh, lots of people. Yep, sorry, what were you saying? Glenn? Yeah, I'm here. Um, I was visited by administrators from on high. And, uh, yes, and I was, was asking if that was now after the event. Yeah, the, I, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, after the event. I'm sorry, the event went very well. I thought, uh, but then I was visited by an administrator uh, on high who said that uh, there are a number of people had concerns about this event, including regents of the college, uh, and that indeed um, some members of the administration thought that this was not, in principle, Singer might be okay, but this was not the time to have Singer. And then uh, I was also told, you know, we had another couple of events scheduled, including John McWhorter, <laughs> Um, I was told that, well, you know, there's also concern about the John McWhorter event, and we had a later event scheduled for on 1619, 
There was some concern about that. Again, the idea being that in principle, these events were okay, but now is not the time. Anyway, this was, in, this was uh, after the event in February um, and um, didn't hear much about things. John came and that was a relatively uh, tranquil affair. I think it was a great event, um, but I didn't get a sense there was much criticism of that as it was going on. Um, but then I met with the same administrator on high along with others on March 28th and was told that my um, appointment, which was to go through August um, uh, 2023, was being um, terminated. Terminated, I see. So yes. you, you went ahead with subsequent events. The Peter Singer event was the, the sort of most uh, salient one. You were visited by uh, administration after that and were told at that time there were concerns about these 1619 and John McWhorter events, but those also took place. However, at the end of the semester now, you're finding that your directorship, which had another year on it, was not going to be uh, extended through the end of that contract. Do I get that correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. And by the way, that that that, yeah, my contract had been extended to August 2023, last July 15th. So, I mean, that was, so, I had what? an appointment through 2022, but July 15th was extended through um, 2023. And what was the problem with this 1619 thing? Is that somebody who was going to speak against it or somebody who was going to speak on its behalf? And I asked you, um, what was the problem with the 1619 person? Were they in favor or against? Was it, what, what was the issue there? I think the issue there was just, I mean, we had two people. We had uh, Leslie Harris, at, whom I, I think you talked to before. On the, the historian, Northwestern and, University. Uh, Phil Magnus. Right. right. And Phil Magnus, who is an economic historian. Leslie Harris oh, yeah. is largely supportive right. of, of 1619, but she's critical on one point. Phil on Magnus, one little point, right. right? And Phil Magnus is largely critical, but he concedes one point to sixteen nineteen on Abraham Lincoln. So the idea was to bring uh, to bring these two people together. They have different points of view, but they're willing to concede. <laughs> That's the idea. They're willing to concede a point to the other side, and I thought it went very well. But the, the concern there is just well, you know, while we're operating with matters of DEI, you know, we don't want to be raising issues that are going to stir things up or that that sort of thing that's that's the kind of consideration that i was hearing and similarly with respect with respect to you you know because you're pushing the envelope on dei kinds of issues uh, even though we weren't focused on that specifically in your event you know this is stirring the pot this is uh, poking people in the eye that's the metaphor that i've heard a number of times now um uh, so that's the kind of concern that has. That so was what do these people consider pushing the envelope to be? It seems like either they feel like they want to see the envelope pushed about maybe, well, what would it be? The environment, something, but apparently race is not allowed and you're not supposed to talk about the disabled. So you're not supposed to push the envelope about anything having to do with subgroups of human beings. It seems to be the idea, which would fit right into this religion that I generally Describe, or is it oh, that I'll, I'll, you're only supposed to push the envelope in insulting conservatives? And I'm not sure how that's pushing the envelope, but maybe they well, wouldn't I mean, understand that. I, I wouldn't. No, I, I wouldn't be that specific in articulating the principles of the critique. I mean, I think that I mean the, the in our particular case, the college shut down in 2017, and it shut down over race matters. It and shut I think down. A high level of anxiety about that's happening again. Oh. Uh, all the while, all the while, of course, that we have this institute, which is supposed to be doing things as I've described by appealing to the mission statement and so forth. So, um, again, if you were to press particular individuals on what their concerns were, I'm not sure we'd have a clear principled explanation for but it. But there's this history you're mentioning. This is something that hasn't I have not been aware of. What happened in 2017? Uh, well, the college shut down in one day, and the issues were um, uh, matters of how diverse students were 
were faring at, at St. Olaf College. And there's been a very, that was a fairly dislocating experience for the college, no question about it. Um, but again, since then, there's been a high level of anxiety about the state of affairs. And so I think that's what we're talking about. Anytime, anytime, um, you know, it just, it wasn't just Peter Singer and John McWhorter in 1619. We had, for example, uh, in the spring of 2000, let's see, 2019, uh, we supported the college Republicans who wanted to bring Heather McDonald. That was, that was not actually an Institute event. We were supporting her on that the book on uh, the diversity delusion and of course, she's critical of DEI measures and that sort of stuff. And, you know, the faculty were very critical of that. Uh, we had Alice Drager here. In fact, the, the, the event right after Glenn Lowry's event uh, in fall of 2019. And she's largely lefty on all kinds of things, but she has gotten into a bit of difficulty and disagreement with certain members of the transgender community about certain things she said about what, the, what empirical theories about what motivates um, transgender um, movements, uh, various kinds, and uh, she's been criticized for that. And there was uh, criticism over that. We had Barry Weiss a year ago, and we had her to talk about anti-Semitism, um, but of course she's pro-Israel, and so there were Palestinian groups on campus who were troubled uh, by that. So, um, and then one other very important moment, we, um, we had invited Andrew Sullivan for the fall of 2020. And um, uh, I got pressure from on high to cancel that event. And indeed, that's what I did after a lot of angsting and concern about it. But I don't feel good about it, to be perfectly honest with you. And I've said in a number of different contexts, that if I regret one thing that I've done as director was probably the cancellation of that event uh, in retrospect. So those are the kinds of issues that the Institute has faced. And I think all of this is sort of the, the Singer event was a kind of, uh, I think the, AM, the uh, AFA document said um, uh, precipitating cause of my dismissal. And I would say a tipping point or something like that um, but that's the way I would characterize. Hi, uh, we're back. It's Glenn Lowry. I'm with John McWhorter. We were with Ed Santuri. He was talking about what's going on at St. Olive and his uh, troubles in running a speaker series at the Institute for Freedom and Community at St. Olive College. Uh, it's an important case. Fire is involved in it. Am I not correct, John? It is. And, um, and they should be because it really is an egregious case of censorship from the left and you get the feeling it's based on intimidating statements made by a very few people and craven administrators are caving in because they'd rather buy their groceries than stand up to principle and yeah i hope that the case is shouted far and wide because in this case it's not as if we're talking about milo yiannopoulos or something like that we're talking about perfectly sensible people saying sensible things that middle of the road people around the country understand and or people being deplatformed for single opinions they hold out of hundreds. It's all of this churchy performativity, and it needs to be called out wherever it happens. And Ed is justified in wanting to save his position. That's particularly important. But as I'm sure he knows, there's also the larger issue of whether intelligent people are going to allow <laughs> small bands of religious zealots to determine who runs what and how things are done. The people who are responsible for this at St. Olaf should be ashamed of themselves, and they should be made to be examined by the whole country. What they're doing should be seen by everybody and evaluated and condemned for what it is. These people are small. They think they're large, but they're small, and they must be called on what they're doing. The only way to keep this country from being run by the elect in all intellectual quarters, is to stand those people down. And that's clearly not what's going on at St. Olaf. Okay, now, uh, what is FIRE? Tell people what FIRE is. <clears throat> FIRE is an organization that's devoted to protecting professors who find themselves in situations like this, for the most part. 
The idea is for free speech to be the guiding tenet. And if your freedom of speech is being interfered with in an unreasonable way, we're not talking about people who are advocating for slavery or something like that, but if your freedom of speech is being interfered with in any way, then fire can help provide resources for people like this to have defense without going broke. And the idea is to stand against the scourge of this sort of thing happening around the country, both from the left and the right. It's not only about the wokesters, it's also the people on the right who are trying to ban books and criticizing people for you know, misinstructing students, et cetera. Uh, I beg to differ, actually. I don't think there's any equivalence between <clears throat> uh, the culture of cancellation uh, for outrage over um, people who, uh, Peter Singer's, uh, I don't know the arguments that he has made with respect to the disabled, so I'm certainly not going to try to to uh, paraphrase them here, but he's made whatever arguments he's made. We know the arguments that Heather McDonald makes about uh, the different issues that she addresses herself to. We know what Barry Weiss might have to say about anti-Semitism. Uh, we know what uh, a person critical of the 1619 Project might have to say, or someone who's skeptical about DEI might have to say. Those are real dug-in ideologies. I don't think you have anything like that on the right. On the right, I think you have a reaction to the left. I mean, on the critical race theory people, the anti-critical race theory people, I think they're over the top in instances. I'm not supporting everything that they're trying to do. But on campuses, the real threat to the culture is coming from the left, I would say. Without a doubt, although it's one of the criticisms I get most often these days, and so it leads me to think about it. A lot of people are equally appalled by right-wing efforts to get certain books pulled out of libraries or not taught to children in school. Or there are ample cases of teachers being fired for, for example, teaching critical race theory or some outgrowth of it or the like. And there are people on the left, and I suspect that most of them are elect themselves, frankly, but there are people watching that from the left who see that as, a, as alarming as what most alarms you and me. And I think that part of it is that we're talking about an attempt, which may be doomed, to save academia and the arts, roughly. Whereas what we're talking about from the right is a matter of the education of small children. There are different threats, but I think many people from the left are worried about the kids and are equally appalled about the right. And many of them, I'm inclined to disagree with them, many of them think what's going on on the right is equally equally large, equally important that they're battling okay. things. I'm sorry to interrupt you, John. They're at right, the end. We're at the end. Yeah. So, so gender fluid teacher, mm -hmm. non-binary, mm -hmm. uh, libs at TikTok. You know what I'm talking about? Um, TikTok? No, libs, libs at TikTok. You know the controversy about libs at TikTok? No. No. Oh, okay. So it's too long for me to go into. Somebody has put up a montage or a string of videos of people posting about themselves at TikTok. Okay. That focuses on exposing how many early grade school teachers are fairly, um, you know, avant garde and and uh, modern in their gender identity positions, and okay. and that way exposing quote unquote what's being put in front of our kids quote okay. unquote. Okay. So, so the, the, the uh, little pushback that I was going to try to get to was uh, if a parent says, no, I don't want my kid being, uh, in effect, uh, introduced to the world of sexual and gender identity in this way, I want to have more control over what my kid thinks about this kind of thing. That I don't want to equate to the tantrum-throwing black kids who can't stand that somebody's going to come to campus and uh, talk about uh, uh, why defund the police is a bad idea. I don't want to equate those two things. I want to say that the presumption in the former case, in the case of the parent concerned about uh, gender fluidity being put in front of their seven-year-old, is with the parent. And I want to say that the presumption in the latter case, where they don't want to have somebody come here and speak because their feelings are hurt by it, 
is with the institution and with openness and with having the person come to speak. The kids went to college precisely to get dislodged from their comfortable identitarian niches. The point of the institution is precisely to make arguments that are making them uncomfortable be put in front of them so that they can grow and that they can learn. A seven-year-old is being nurtured into, you know, adult, into maturity and uh, so forth and, and, and develop with, with ideas that are contestable. I mean, they just, I mean, let, anyway, this is the position that I don't want to take. Some people may say these ideas are not contestable and that they lie entirely with the, with the progressive and the, and the avant-garde, uh, you know, dislodging of certain conventionalities and kind of counter, counter, you know. Uh, but, but the position I'm taking is that the very same civilization that we're trying to defend when we say keep the campus open so that arguments can be made is threatened. <laughs> By undermining parental governance over the nurturance of children when they're seven years old and, and making that institutionalized and subject to the very religious fervor that you wrote a book uh, denouncing. You know, it's. Um, I think that the people on the left watching, say, the, the non-binary-esque grade school teacher being given trouble, they do see that as a horror show in the same way as we see, you know, Ed Santuri dismissed from his post. Yeah. I don't know. We may occupy, despite that we have the same world and demographics, slightly different worlds, partly because I'm a little younger. And so I have small, smallish kids. Yeah. But in my world, roughly, I mean, in my, um, this is probably overshooting it, but it seems like about every eighth teenager, you know, once they get past about 10 is gender fluid or non-binary in some way. You know, you get very fluent with the they. You get used to a 13-year-old who doesn't consider themselves a boy or a girl. It's no longer wow. something unusual. That's now just normal. It's, it's One in eight. One in eight. And that's not, I want people to know that's not an official statistic. But when I think about my life, when I think about aggregates of children that I know in various settings of my life, it's now something where you don't even think twice and the yeah. parents that I know, you know, mostly 30 and 40 something educated white parents look upon this with a certain bemusement, but they embrace it. And some of them, I think, frankly, kind of like it. I'm not saying that somebody who claims that they're non-binary is just jumping on a fad. Some of them are, but, you know, quite a few of them aren't. But I think it's, it's fashionable now for one of your kids to Gosh. be what you call a, um, a pronoun person and the idea now is that <laughs> to be gay that's boring that's that's easy you know i get the feeling that there's a certain tacit sense that wow. gay is not interesting that what you're really supposed to do is try to be a kind of in-between person curb your enthusiasm had a joke where they were showing people where the larry character goes to an office and you know the the, the office staff are clearly various things and there's one rather masculine looking woman a black woman actually and, you know, she just says, oh, I'm not non-binary. I'm just gay, like just gay. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. That's the world. And so for them, for people like this, I can think they are horrified that somebody doesn't want a book to be in the library because the book is exploring homosexuality. And I'm just describing wow. this. That's why to them it's an equally grievous problem because they live it in a way that I get the feeling you don't. And to me, I'm just kind of standing on the sidelines, anthropologically observing. Neither of my children have presented this so far, but it's okay. very alive in this world. This Here, I'm going to I'm going to condemn myself for future cancellation by saying, and may none of neither of your children ever so manifest. <laughs> I mean, I was going to wish it so. Not saying that they can be whatever they want. Yeah, I, I just know. want have, them. <laughs> I want them to mean it. What I'm afraid do, do, of. Do you one really of them, mean that you don't care? I don't mean to press you on this job, but I'm going to press you on it. Really? You don't care? I would care if I could tell they didn't mean it. If one of my kids says, I don't uh, feel like I'm a girl or a boy, and they're going to be this in-between person, great. What would bother me? Just like it would bother me if one of them came home complaining about the white man and pretending that racism defined their lives. It would be an act. And what I would really despise is that they were acting. If one of them jumps on it as a fashion, I'm going to have to hold my breath and hope that doesn't last too long. I just wanted to be real. 
That's all. But but the very predicate that you laid down, which is that in the world that you live in, which is not the world that I live in, neither geographically, socioeconomically, in the terms of the the culture that surrounds you, or uh, age-wise, uh, it is becoming kind of a fad or fashion or something. You say gay is not even interesting anymore. You have to be trans to be on the transgressive edge of the sexual uh, life sphere. Uh, well. Th- the argument, the arguments almost kind of negate themselves. I mean, on the one hand, they they want to say <laughs> it's simply the it's simply the way we are. Accept me. This is my nature. On the other hand, your report is that fashion and fat vary and change with generation and location. So, you know, there is a social determination to a certain extent of the identity choice that a person is making, there is an element of choices. They're not, uh, if not quite immediately and consciously at the level of the individual, then collectively, definitely at the level of society. Yet we can encourage or discourage this kind of thing. I, I, I don't, I, I am, I'm going to get into trouble here by saying I'm very, I'm very unsettled Maybe it's not going to put me in trouble. Maybe it's just going to identify me as a homophobe. I out myself here. I'm very unsettled by this whole shift of sensibility, um, if indeed that's what's happening. Uh, people long suppressed now finally being allowed to be themselves. Is that what you're telling me? Or a social consciousness emerging organically in our very midst? Uh, that that is uh, or that is uh, evolving. That 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 is uh, to some degree indeterminate. Not a not a natural and inexorable uh, liberation of a of a, a you know constant uh, you know uh, given te- uh, subtext, but instead something we're making up as we go along. And the the politics of it, uh, you know. Uh, I, I'm I'm very worried about it, and, and I I think that it might be a sign of decadence. Here, I'll go this far. It might be a sign of a certain kind of uh, uh, dissolution uh, of 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 of, <laughs> of, oh, of the of the sinew of the fiber. Things fall apart. Uh, a kind of a kind of uh, unraveling. Every second show we do, you get me closer to this flame, and you know now we actually have to talk about it. I um, I have no doubt because it's so clear that there have always been a great many people in our society who didn't feel comfortable with this thing that you know you're either a boy or a girl. I've known many people where it wasn't just gay. There's some people who really just kind of felt in between, and I feel like we are. At a point where we, like many quote-unquote primitive societies, are making a space for people who feel that way now. Is it also very fashionable such that some people are going to play with it as a kind of a toy identity? That is inevitable. The question would be why that wouldn't happen. I don't know what percentage of people now are just messing with it. I know from my time slice over the past, say, three or four years, I've seen some where I can tell that by the time they're in college, they're just going to be a boy or a girl. They're, 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 They're playing at it. And I can't see that that hurts anything. The reason oh, wait a that- minute, because there are medical interventions. I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, they're doing the- things. They're taking hormones and they're doing that's, things. That's a whole other issue. This business of people who are seven and eight and having their bodies changed. I'm still working out my feelings about that. I'm talking about people who are just running around wearing dresses or pants or something like that. Kind of first wave of this. And you're making me think. The reason I don't want one of my daughters, they're going to see this when they get older. And suppose one of them is. The reason I don't want my daughters to play at it is not because I disapprove of the it. It's that it would, you know what it is? It would make them joiners. It would mean that they're looking at other people and they're just doing what everybody else does. And I want them to be like me and you and be somebody where when the crowd comes, you kind of run to the other side of the room. I want them to think for themselves. I don't want them to copy those two cool kids who do something. That's why. It's not that I would have a problem if one of them really did say I never felt right in my skin because Lord forbid they would spend their whole life doing that. I mean, you just now there's also an issue and I don't know what I think of this because I haven't thought hard enough about it. But 
why can't you be just gay? With some of them, what it is is that you're a lesbian or you're a gay man, and instead you decide that you're a girl or a boy. I'm not quite sure where you draw the line on that, but I'm sure you know as well as me that if you think of large aggregations of people, your own family, clubs, your graduate school cohort, what have you, there was that woman who, you know, liked to wear blazers whenever she could and, you know, clearly kind of thought of herself as sort of a man, but never put it that way and maybe wasn't a lesbian. It was kind of in between. There was that guy who collected dolls on the side and he was very good at it and he was a really sharp dresser and he had a certain flamboyant sense of humor. And you could tell he really did like women and maybe even sexually, but you could imagine there were some other things he was kind of doing on the side. And the woman was curiously less charismatic than him, which is often the case with guys like that. And there were little stories that people would tell. He was in between. Now, in 1955, he had to just live this weird life. Now he can be non-binary. I like that. You know? John, I like the way you describe it. You could be a novelist. I, I, I love this. Uh, <laughs> that was not intentional. The, the color. Another one of these know, avatars. But yeah. Painting the scene there for me about this personality. I know remember that, that guy. guy. I know okay. that guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, and I am older, and, and, I, and I know I'm, you know, I don't think I'm going to win this one. Whatever uh, peak woke moment we might be in or post-peak woke moment we might be in, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to win this one. It's so new, and it's so complicated. I avoid this partly. I just don't know what I think yet. It's just, it's all very new for me in the 50s. Like, what are these categories? But my inclination is to try to be as accepting as possible because I don't think it's going to change. I think this is permanent. I get the feeling it's progress. At least I want to think of it that way. Well, I wonder if it's happening in China. I'm a little. I really doubt it. I doubt it very seriously. No, it is, it is happening in the East Asian countries. China and Japan and well, I don't know about Japan, but China, Korea, and Thailand all have. And Thailand has long had a category of the girl boy, except it's in Thai. And that, that fits into society, and they're neither one nor the other. And effeminateness is increasingly fashionable. I don't know about lesbianness, but effeminateness and gender non-binariness is increasingly fashionable in China and Korea. There are different conceptions, and of course it's mainly in the cities and among people who are relatively educated. but. There's a world aspect to this from what I've heard, you know, so. Okay. Wow. I, I have, I'm a dinosaur over here. <laughs> <laughs> no. John, it was good to see you. It was good to meet Oksana. Can I mention her name in our public podcast? <laughs> yes. And you did meet her. That's right. It was good to meet your, your house. You have the best yeah. house in the whole world. That was Thank you very much, John. Proud of my house. It's our castle. It's our palace. It's our baby, me and Luan. We didn't even get to see the downstairs. Thing. There's a bar down no. there. There's a bar. There's a pool table. There's a family room. There's a spa. There's a spa with a jacuzzi and a, a, a sauna uh, and whatnot. Everything is not functional. We're, you know, it's, we're in this for the long haul, so we're doing one step at a time, one step at a time. But yeah, we only used the uh, the entry level. We didn't use the lower level. And that place didn't cost $6 million because you're in Providence. So it was an approachable price. I'm not asking you to name it, but it was some relatively approachable price, too. I was sitting there. Yeah, it was in six figures, and uh, it's probably going to sell for, if it were to sell today, for twice what we paid for it. Wow. Because we've invested, you know, a good chunk here. And we had a whole... One half of the lower of the uh, ground entry level was redone to our satisfaction and some architectural changes. Windows had to be uh, put in that didn't exist before and, mm. you know, et cetera. I mean, you know. Interesting. Very we live in large over here. You are. People, you should see Glenn's house. I was just sitting there jealous and angry. Grand Yamaha piano. Yeah, very nice, nice setup. <laughs> did david Sachs not play the hell out of that piano man he could have a career that's right this is glenn's protege yeah my student david was a classics major here at brown and is graduating this year and has been a ta 
for our course on free inquiry in the modern world that we've taught for a couple of years. And, and uh, did I'll miss three knuckle-busting Chopin pieces just in a row. You know, just Man, did he bang them out with such passion, you know. Mini Horowitz. I was, I was very pleased. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the best point for me came when he told me that my piano was up to snuff. <laughs> he said it was better than some of the practice uh, pianos that they have over in the music uh, department. You know, you have one of those creamy Yamahas. Yeah, that was, and I could tell you tuned it recently, so it sounds. Yeah, we tried to keep it tuned. You know, yeah. I was afraid someone was going to ask me to play at the piano in my home, and I would have been shy mm-hmm. about that. And then I would have said, "Oh no, no, let's let John play. He does show tunes. He does." I Broadway. promise, next time I will. <laughs> okay, it was a complicated night. And yeah. sing? I would do that, too. I would do it. Oh, this would be like in one of those 1950s movies. You remember the guys with the cigarettes and the silk smoking jackets and the uh, mon- uh, the martinis and whatnot? You know, I and they'd do be- you a set of that? And the mink, the stoles that the, w- the women would wear, they'd be standing around sipping their drinks and in somebody the would be uh, tickling yeah. the ivy, <laughs> ivory. <laughs> Not the cigarette, but all the rest of it. We can we can do that next time, definitely. <laughs> yeah, John was up here in Providence, Rhode Island, with his lovely Oksana, his his partner, his mate. I'm sorry, John. I, I should not say that. I take it back. I, I should not characterize your relationship. But you said it. Uh, visiting because of the the conference, the conference, the Fest Shrift Conference, honoring your humble servant here, Glenn Lowry, in recognition of his lifetime achievements as a scholar and a public intellectual panels of all manner. We'll uh, have more to say about that at the Glenn Show in due course, but that was the occasion of John coming up and visiting my home. Yeah, Glenn, how did you feel about, um, just a quick prelude, I liked that, you know, nobody was criticizing you in any recreational way, but people like were bringing up points that you might have wanted to respond to, you know, think, discrepancies or questions that they had. I'll bet you enjoyed that, that people were. I, I, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, it, you know, it's making me think, I mean, taking me seriously. I mean, you know, and, and caring and caring enough to want to say, you know, we love you. I mean, even if we don't always agree, but have you considered this or that? So, yeah, I mean, we could name chapter and verse, but we, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to just be talking about me. Mm-hmm. Um, Oksana, was, Oksana was in awe, by the way. I should say that from her. Oh. She was really excited to meet this Glenn in the flesh. So, yeah. <laughs> well, the thing was, I, I don't think they've seen anything quite like it. Uh, my colleagues who attended this conference honoring my uh, academic and public intellectual work because of the combination of the two. I mean, there was, uh, you know, uh, people, including very distinguished scholars at leading universities uh, who were both present in person and also weighing, uh, weighing in by Zoom, who would say, oh, here, let me take these three of Lowry's papers. Here's what I think about them. Let me take that area of Lowry's research. Here's what I think about that. And weighing in in detail, sometimes critically, often laudatory fashion, and just giving expression to the breadth of, of my academic contribution. But then there are also people who, you know, run uh, community activist organizations. And, Bob Woodson, uh, right. Uh, Bob Woodson, uh, Ernesto Cortez of the Industrial Areas Foundation out in Texas, uh, Raihan Salam, the uh, president of the Manhattan Institute, um, who were uh, addressing themselves to the impact that my uh, journalism and, and, and my public ministry here at the Glenn Show, it's a ministry, it's preaching to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, about about the impact of that. And, you know, my my old friend, Ronald Ferguson, whom I started graduate school with 50 years ago at the MIT in 1972, and who's, you know, known me as long as anybody. I know me and Linda, my late wife, knew us very well. You know, we were we were there together at MIT for for the duration of those uh graduate school years. You know, I didn't know that you were friends with him. And to be oh, honest... you knew him, but didn't know that we were friends. And given his positions, and not that he's some sort of ideologue or anything, but given yeah. his positions, I would have thought you and him would have sort of gone your separate ways the way you did with with Darity, you know? 
Oh, no, my, I, I barely have a relationship with Darity. It's cordial. Of course, we know each other. We've known each other just as long almost as Ron and I have. But Darity and I are, as it were, enemies or, you know, some, something like that. I mean, I, I, I say that very, uh, it, you know, with, with sadness, actually. I don't mean well, it Darity to be true. Is, I don't is want it to be angry and mean. He's mean on social media. I'm sorry. So, yeah, he's, you, you end up breaking up with somebody like him. Yeah, I, we could talk about him. <laughs> I mean, I, I think he thinks he's got his finger on the truth. I think, he, I, you know. He does. You know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to try to summarize his thought um, or, or label it. Uh, but, but it, he's dug in and uh, he thinks he knows what the forces are that are uh, at work. And, you know, he thinks he's he indignant, knows where. He, indignant that you haven't read him and learned the truth. And that, you know, apparently if you don't listen to him, then you must be some sort of ideological monster or some sort of success seeker. And, you know, you can't cut through that with him. It's just, he's so contemptuous. Ron Ferguson, I think, probably agrees a lot with some of the stuff that, that Darity would agree with and yeah. disagrees with me about some of that stuff. On the other hand, he respects me in, in ways that I don't think uh, Darity does. And I think he knows my, my heart uh, and is generous with respect to that. I mean, he thinks I'm sincere. He thinks I'm well-meaning. You know, he, he, he respects my intellect and, and my, my abilities. And, you know, he, he, he doesn't impute a motive to me that's uh, dishonorable. And I, I think he's not like that. Yeah. I think Sandy's quite the opposite. I think he thinks we're, we're dishonorable, you know, for different reasons, perhaps the two of us, but Scoundrel. in our own respective ways, we're, we're dishonorable. Yeah. We're scoundrels. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Uh, I, had, I hadn't seen Ron in the better part of 20 years. It was nice to see him again. I had forgotten what just a great guy he is. You know, just he's just yes. good to sit next to. Kerwin Charles, who's the dean of the business school at Yale, made some remarks at dinner that was so wonderful. He was good. Talk about what eloquence is. That was that was amazing. He just stood up and gave that speech without a single note, you know, and it was so seamless. It was so it, uh, organized and effective. I admire passionate. that quality. Yep. Yeah, uh, you know, because you stepped out on a limb. I, I know what it is to try to do that because you don't know, you know, there's no net. There's, there's no looking down at the text and seeing even an outline, you know, A, B, C, one, two, three, you're basically out there and you have to kind of weave it all together in this spontaneous, it's like a jazz uh, solo kind of thing. You know? That's what he did, actually. And he knew when to yeah. get off. It was exactly the, the right length and it wasn't highfalutin, but it wasn't too low. He nailed it. I was, I was touched watching him. Yeah. Yes, there were many noteworthy uh, contributions to the conference. Thanks, John. Thanks for coming. What are you up to, John? Uh, I want to ask you about the Supreme Court, frankly. Well, I, I mean, I, I wonder if you share my impression on this. This is about the leaked memo of Justice Alito's draft opinion and what would appear to be a majority of the court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, about which everybody has heard. I now, I, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to ask a question to frame it, which is, I've I've seen two uh, kind of qualitative tendencies in the reaction. One is to say, what the fuck, the court is getting ready to do this. You know, these conservative judges are getting ready to overturn Roe versus Wade. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And the other is to say, can you believe that somebody leaked a draft opinion of the United States Supreme Court? Do you know what a breach of protocol and... Uh, etiquette and ethics that is and how fundamentally subversive of the institution that is. They, they're trying to influence the court by, uh, you know, kind of popular uh, uprising against the thing, that kind of thing. And I'm, and I'm wondering if, if, if you too have noticed that bifurcation in the reaction and what you make of that. But you may have other things to say about it. It too. reminds me of the uproar over Biden saying outright that he was going to have a black woman as the next justice. Whether we were supposed to talk about him telegraphing that at the time that he did, as opposed to whether she was qualified, that she was qualified, whether it was significant, et cetera. It just seems to me, okay, 
there was a leak that's probably going to continue partly because of modern technology and partly because of the, the tenor of the times. I'm not sure that this issue of trying to make somebody swing would actually have happened given how extremely polarized people are about this particular issue. I mean, maybe one of the Supremes would have had some sort of change of heart, but doesn't seem like it to me with, you know, my onlooker self. So I'm just more interested in what they're trying to do. And my sense of it is just that there is no majority sentiment in this country that they're following. It's just that the composition of the court is such that they can get away with having it their way. Not that that hasn't happened before, but on such an important and sensitive issue, I'm really sad that they're going to be able to do this because it's not the way most people feel. The idea that, you know, the, that you know, as soon as a fetus exists, it's a human life, that's a very interesting position. And I've written a piece in the Times where I say I don't agree with it, but I cannot see somebody being of that opinion as being a terrible person. I don't think it's immoral to feel that way. I find it weird science, but there's nowhere to draw a line. But the thing is, most people don't feel that that particular biological distinction should take the general precedence that it will in like half of our states based on this decision. And so I'm just, um, it's a real sim, it's a real sign of how clotted our political system is because of gerrymandering and the outdated electoral college and the fact that you can have these justices with those positions there without it reflecting even approximately what most of the country thinks. And um, it's sad that it's going to be so much harder for poor women. This isn't going to be about middle-class women for the most part, but poor women to decide what they want to do about an unplanned pregnancy. It's going to create so much misery, and I hope that technology can catch up to an extent. But the problem is that after a certain point, pills don't work, and I don't think they ever will. You have to have something done. Well, and I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm so sad for what this is going to mean for so many people. I want to ask you to hold on because I, I mean, well, I have two points, and I mean, I think we we're conflating, or you're conflating, with respect, what the court is deciding, which is not the issue of should abortion be legal or not. The court is deciding whether the Constitution protects a woman's right to abortion, which is a different question. The the court's decision in the Alito uh, draft would, if enacted, have the effect of returning the question to the states to decide about whether or not abortion should be legal. It's entirely possible that, I don't know that it's true of any of the justices who might vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, that they should agree with you about the question of when life begins or doesn't and what uh, choices a woman should have, but nevertheless conclude that there's nothing in the Constitution that guarantees a woman a right to this effect. That th those are separable things. I just want to make that point, and we, we can talk about both of them. You know, but I may agree with you about the abortion that's uh, clearly po policy true. question. That's yeah. clearly true that there is that jurisprudential aspect of these things. But let's face it, that's not why that there, there's this special attention to, to this issue, especially when you're talking about more grassroots efforts. There are people who don't like it, and they've gotten it to the point that a blanket rule has to be made, and there are these justices who are saying that the Constitution can't decide this. These but, people are trying to make the argument a constitutional argument, when in fact, those on the court who want to overturn Roe want to make the argument a political argument, sure. a political argument where you run for office, where you try to get a majority behind your position, where you write a law and you enact it, as opposed to something that's etched into the Rosetta Stone that's a part of the Ten Commandments that are the framing documents of the country, you've created a right. So that's a, I mean, I'm not taking a position on it, although I will admit to being sympathetic to those who are skeptic about whether or not the creation of that right was a coherent constitutional move. Uh, and I lament the kind of political polarization that has come about such that, I mean, come on, let's think about it. Donald Trump might have gotten elected in 2016 because the court didn't uh, overturn Roe versus Wade in 2012. Not that they had the opportunity to do so, but do you see what I mean? What I mean is the tectonic plates underneath in American politics 
allow that, allowed that guy to go around crowing that he was going to put pro-life justices on the United States Supreme Court. That's part of what brought those evangelicals over to his side, despite his history of personal scandal. That's only possible because the Supreme Court created a right to something that a good minority of the population regards as uh, 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 with revulsion. So, you know, anyway, anyway, I had another point, if I may, which is... Although very quickly, I wanted to say that a lot of this is priorities. And my sense is that do we listen to that minority and therefore break down this fragile but useful national judicial prescription that we had? And this is about that we had for what, 50 years. what are the lives of these people who were born now who wouldn't have been going to be like? And I can't help having that old knee-jerk liberal, as it used to be called, idea here. Okay, suppose people end up carrying these pregnancies to term more. What kind of lives are they going to have given the inequality in this but country? You're doing I, I can't what I just people. asked you that to do. You, you're, you're conflating the two things. The court That's not for the court to decide. I can't be that anodyne about it. It was always a fragile decision. I mean, there was always a coherent argument that it should have been left to the states. But Okay, okay. So let me make my second point, if I may. Yeah. Which is the Supreme Court of the United States stands, and I'm sure Justice Roberts is keenly aware of this, at a critical historical juncture. People are talking about packing the court. A guy who a lot of people think, even if you concede that the 2016 election was fairly decided, Donald Trump, is illegitimate because they tried to impeach him twice and they won't let him have a Twitter account. Anyway, I was just saying the Supreme Court's at a critical juncture. I I was saying the guy that a lot of people think is illegitimate, Donald Trump, appointed three, count them, three, three justices to the United States Supreme Court, including one right within the shadow of his own electoral defeat and one who took the place of someone who should have been confirmed, but who the, uh, that guy, that rascal in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, kept from ever getting a vote. So the Supreme Court is in play. People talking about packing the court and what the Supreme Court is in play. Now somebody leaks a draft opinion. Why? In order to influence the midterm elections in 2022? You, you make this into a big... Uh, you know, brouhaha issue, and you can motivate the Democrats to come out, and you can discredit the Republicans to some degree. I mean, shouldn't we all be a little unsettled by the, by the growing politicization, or are you going to tell me it's always been so, uh, of, of, the, of the Supreme Court? This is the law. And, and I might even mention, you said, you said it, not me, um, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, and the way that Biden handled that. And we're in an era of fierce conflict over diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the Democrats are running absolutely full bore on it. We have a black woman finally after 258 years, however long it's been. Politicizing the Supreme Court is what I'm talking about. It's always been so. Well, in this case, with the always, you'd have to talk about the whole history of the country and certain isolated episodes. But you're making me think about this. There are times when you've got to do the Liberty Valance thing. (laughs) And this, what's going on with the Republicans right now? And I have to check myself because I remember everybody talking about the country being in this unique existential crisis during the GWB administration. This is the worst it's ever been. Now you look back on that and it seems like an episode of West Wing. But I do feel like this is the worst, partly because of the weird thing of social media and its range. And we have this Republican establishment that has this disproportionate power, despite being led partly by people who haven't got a wit of sense at all. And we have this Machiavellian person in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who clearly is about as close to amoral as any public figure that I've known lately who's intelligent. And this is the way it looks like it's going to be forever. If somebody leaked this document in concern for that, Glenn, I hate to say that in the grand scheme of things, looking at it with the camera pulled back, how this republic dealt with its problems, maybe 
that's deep throat. Maybe that's the way it had to be in order to create a larger, all those sloppy kind of justice. I can't say I mind deeply. Now, maybe it wasn't least for that reason. Oh, no. You can't go with it. I I could disagree with you more, John. I don't think it's going to have an effect, but if that's why the person did it, we're in. Well, okay, so when Trump was president, stuff started coming out like... (laughs) He'd have a call with a foreign leader somewhere, and the next thing you know, the New York Times would know what they said in the telephone call. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of stuff. And it was okay, because it was Trump, and you know he was a fucking asshole, and he had a Muslim ban, and he was a racist. He uh, questioned Barack Obama's birth certificate. That's he said... Not- I wouldn't justify it on the basis of that, but go ahead. Well, 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 the the, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if I'm not mistaken, during the election crisis of 2020, communicated to the Chinese government that uh, notwithstanding turmoil within our ranks, not to worry, any apparent semblance of aggressive action from us uh, would not be, should not be interpreted as a a threat. Uh, And if there were going to be a problem, I'll let you know. That was pretty unprecedented. He went over the head of the commander-in-chief to communicate with the Chinese government. If I've got my facts straight, this is the story that I heard. I, I, I heard people on cable television and in print call the president of the United States a traitor, say that he was being blackmailed by the head of state of a nuclear power who is our rival, at, with whom we are in effect at war now. I mean... Uh, I think the uh, 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 violation of, of, of norms of restraint in how it is that you uh, talk about the president of the United States that were characteristic of the Trump era were unprecedented in my lifetime. I mean, of course, Nixon was Nixon. By the time Nixon went out, you know, he was Nixon. But I never saw anything like it myself. Uh, and I, th- I think it was authorized by the fact that the guy was who he was. And a lot of people thought, you know, it's an existential threat to the republic. Fuck him. That, that's what they thought. And, I'm, and all I'm trying to say is he's not president anymore, but that that um, chicken is out of the hen house or yeah. what, whatever it is. Something has been loosed into the world here of a kind of uh lack of restraint or deference or something like that that you know people just think that it's a good and evil it's black and white they're you know there this conservative court is going to overturn roe a woman's white right to choose we fought hard to keep people like kavanaugh off the court and clarence thomas for that matter off the court precisely because there are too many catholics on the courts they're going to overturn roe versus wade and that legitimates doing what might have been thought unthinkable uh, in, in a prior time. I hear you. Sometimes a little vigilante justice, without a doubt. You're right. How far does that go? I know what you mean. Maybe it made a certain sense two, three years ago, but is that going to be the way it is forever? And I know that that's a danger. I think that the slippery slope argument can be overapplied. I've sometimes wished that I were in a field where writing an article about that would make some sense, but that's not linguistics, but I'm not sure I see it. Um, In this case, I think that it's as urgent as Trump's idiocy was just this fossilized Republican colossus that is basically determining what happens in this country on so many levels and making meaningful legislation impossible, except by executive order that this isn't right. It isn't right. And I know that this Robert Caro ideal was really just something that existed during the middle decades of the 20th century. That's maybe that's never going to happen again. But wow, the sclerotic nature of these things leads me to think that certain irregular actions are necessary because business as usual won't work, even if there's a uniquely charismatic leader, as we've seen with Barack Obama and what he quote unquote meant. Biden isn't charismatic, but you know who who would who would be at this point? Who could get anything done with the Senate, in particular, the way it is? So I just worry. 
let me make a prediction. Your charisma is going to come from the right. You're going to yeah. have you're going to have a um, smart governor. Maybe he's a governor of Florida. I don't know. Or she. Yeah. Or she. Or maybe it's a black person. They, they might it, be. It, you can't rule that out. I mean, over the next 20 years. It could happen. They're, they're going to have a counter-revolution against not only wokeness, but against this kind of soft uh, uh, left uh, uh, compromise with wokeness mm-hmm. that, that constitutes the center of the Democratic Party. That constitutes the the heartbeat of the of the intellectual left, of the journalistic uh, uh, mainstream, corporate, uh, et cetera. Uh, there's a cultural backlash that's brewing. You see it in the schools and whatnot. Uh, the Latinos are, are are peeling away from the Democratic Party. I, the the race thing is bankrupt. Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. I mean, there's a kind of almost a caricature. I mean, they're like a cartoon that you if you were trying to make up this thing. Uh, and I just think the wind is blowing in the other direction. And I and and I I think uh, somebody can put it together. Uh, and uh, th- that's where I think the the charisma is going to come from. And the and the people on the other side are going to go ballistic. They're gonna they're gonna say fascism is afoot. Um, it's going to get very ugly, uh, and uh, and people are so dug in, and you know, I mean, I was with my friend. One of my friends was at the conference. So I don't want to name who's a, a very liberal guy I've known for a long time. I mean, he's still talking about uh, Barack Obama's birth certificate and stuff. I mean, he's still, you know, it's, you know, and uh, I, I, so. <laughs> Um, people ask me whether I want to be right or be helpful. And I want to know, be helpful to what? You apparently know who you want to be helpful to. You say uh, it's worth uh, throwing a monkey wrench in the works in order to slow the machine down because the machine is off count. And, and, and you think you know. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, no, need, to I, talk, uh, we need to talk about this impending war next time because that's a very interesting proposition is that really where it's possibly leading or are we just leading to more slow grinding bitter nastiness decade after decade because history works that way too i'd be interested to know all right john thanks a lot talk to you soon see you in a bit